All right, you guys, please turn in your Bibles to chapter 6. We didn't get to finish it all, so go to chapter 6, about verse 11. And uh, that's a little too loud. Just uh, reduce the volume just a tad for me, Alan, if you would. And uh, anyway, from chapter 6, verse 11 to chapter 7, we're going to go into about verse uh, 16. So, the Apostle Paul. He's given us, uh, the church in Corinth, I should say, but in, in the Word of God, anything you read that's written to a church, written to this or that, you can always apply it to ourselves. In fact, that's really good Bible study, is to take what we read, apply it to ourselves, and ask if God wants to do anything in our life or change anything in our life before we ever assume that it's meant for somebody else. So, he told the church in Corinth not to receive the grace of God in vain. So what's the grace of God? Everything. Everything. Jesus Christ has given absolutely everything for us. That is the ultimate grace of God. Now he also told them, if you take a look at the meaning of that and kind of dissect the words, it's basically we're not supposed to be empty vessels that look good on the outside but on the inside, there's not really anything there. At least not much of any kind of spiritual value. And that's why we're here this morning, is to talk about spiritual value, not necessarily philanthropic um, value or what the world values, but to talk about what's really meaningful for us as Christians. So we don't want to be empty. We don't want to be void. We don't want to take that grace of God dying on the cross and take it for granted in vain, if you will. Now, we talked about consistency in our walks, but we didn't have a chance to get to the separation part of our walk. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We ask that you might give us your grace and you might give us your mercy And that, Father, we might have the ability to hear your heart. Sometimes a pastor, any speaker, can get in the way of what you want to do and what you want to say. But, Father, we want to hear from you. We want to know your heart. I know that there are folks here who completely dedicated, committed, and love you with all that they've got. I also know, Father, there may be some who are seeking, some who are just trying to figure out if you're real. But Father, like you did and you fed the, the thousands with the loaves and the fish, two simple little things from a little boy, and you fed that group, that large group of people. So Father, we know that if we stick to your word, you can fill us. You can fill that empty void that's inside of our heart. There's so many folks today that are lost. They don't have any idea what's going on, wondering what their purpose is for life. But Father, I pray that you'd give them a clear view of what that is this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, guys, let's look at that call to separation, starting in verse 11 of chapter 6. He says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Isn't that the truth? Restricted by our own affections. So what does that mean? You're human. Being a human and being godlike 
those two kind of run in opposition of each other. So we are restricted, as James says, you know, when we're tempted, tested of the Lord, it's because we fall into our own human desires that we make the choices that we make. So he's saying you're restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, meaning having an open heart, I speak to you as children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Unequally yoked with unbelievers. We're going to discuss that a little bit more in detail here in a minute after I finish these verses. But some of us are unequally yoked. Some of us became unequally yoked before we became Christians. Some of us are unequally yoked maybe in a business deal. We may be unequally yoked in several things in our life or there may just be something in our life that shouldn't be there that causes us to be unequally yoked to that thing. Okay, so he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he goes on to what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness. Now, I want you to notice that word fellowship. What does that mean to you? Now, think about that in the context of Christianity and ask yourself what that has to do with unbelievers, with the lost, with the world. Not much. This is what he's saying. What fellowship? Then he goes on, to say, and communion. What communion has light with darkness? Now we know what communion is. Communion is not really necessarily just taking the elements. Why do we take the elements? We take the elements to remember the sacrifice. We take the elements. What do you usually do before you take communion? Confession. Repentance. You try to clear your heart before the Lord before you take it so that you don't take it unjustly, right? So he says, what communion has light with darkness? None. None. There is no communion with light and darkness. Has Christ, what communion has Christ with Belial? Satan. What does what communion Jesus and the devil don't have parties. They don't have dinner time together. They don't sit in fellowship. They don't go out for a beer together. That's not the case. So what accord has Christ with Belial? That means agreement. What harmony do they have? Now, I want to focus on the word harmony for a minute. Now, harmony is beautiful. In music, you stack three notes together in the right uh, place, and it's just this beautiful harmony taking place. There is no harmony hanging out with the world. If you're a Christian, if you're truly a Christian, there is no harmony in hanging out with the world. You have nothing in common with him. As the saying goes, you dance to a different drummer. Your life is dedicated to Jesus Christ and the folks out there, it's not. So you cannot expect them to walk the same path you're walking unless they truly come to a place of giving their heart to Jesus Christ. 
So many times people start out saying, well, I'll, I'll be an influence on them. I'll, I'll make them change. They will eventually, please don't bet on that because you could spend the next 30, 40 years with someone who's going in a completely different direction as you and there's no harmony at all between your walk and their walk. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, here's the command. Come out from among them and be separate. Are you separated from the world? Now, I'm going to give some more clarity to this as we go on. But we have one foot in and one foot out. I'm a Christian on Sunday. Maybe once in a while on a rare miracle, I, midweek or some other event. But I live in the world, so my heart is in the world. Or partly in the world. Or can you live in this world and still be completely 100% dedicated to Jesus Christ. Yes, we can. But that's a decision. That's something we have to decide that I'm hanging in with Jesus. I may not be perfect, but I'm going to hang in with the Lord. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. Come out and be separate. And it says, do not touch what is unclean. Remember Eve in the garden? She had the warning, right? She knew what she was supposed to do and not supposed to do. What did she do? She saw, and it was beautiful to see. But that wasn't where she messed up. She touched. She touched it. Guys, gals, we are human. There's going to be things in this world that we see that the enemy's going to make very attractive at the time. Don't touch. Don't touch. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, that's a pretty intimate statement. I'll be your dad. I'll be your Abba. I'll be your Abba father. And you will be my sons, and you will be my daughters. So here we see Paul breaking into that separation from the world. Christians have always been surrounded by evil. It's there. It's going to be there. And until Jesus comes back, we're going to have to deal with it. Without being committed to the separation because of our love for God, we're not going to be able to do it. And there are so many Christians today who want to live out there in the world that it's you you get corrupted and if you're not careful pretty soon you can't tell the difference between God's kids and Satan's I know that seems like a harsh statement there's a lot of shades of gray in the middle of that right there's a lot of subtleties in which that goes to where someone you see completely sold out a Satanist to someone who's just dabbling in things that they shouldn't be dabbling in. But there should be a difference. People should be able to tell the difference between us and Satan's kids. Now, that influence has always been around. We see it very clearly in the Old Testament. Solomon turned away under the influence of heathen women. 
multiple wives, adding um, everything he could possibly add to his kingdom, he added to his kingdom because he was wealthy. But he, he fell. We look at Solomon, he was a wise man, wise beyond anybody's imagination, but he just couldn't quite be completely dedicated to the things of God and do what God told him to do because he was also ruled by his flesh. We all have that flesh, but we don't have to be ruled by it. Don't have to be ruled by it. You know that saying that bad company corrupts good morals. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, it says, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts bad habits. That's where we get that from. For us to think that we can hang around people who are not committed to Jesus Christ and not be changed, I think is a foolish thought. We will be changed. We will be changed. Early on, I told my boys, because I had read this from one of the guys, one of the, the, I think, it had to be Spurgeon, right? Spurgeon says everything, so it's probably, it was probably Spurgeon. But he was talking about who's going to pull who down. If a guy standing up, or anybody, a, a gal or a guy, standing on a chair, the Christian, standing on Jesus, hopefully, and you've got someone standing on the floor, who do you think's going to win? Can the one standing on the chair pull them up or the one on the floor pull them down? The one standing on the floor will have the leverage and they will pull the one on the chair down. And for us to think that we're so strong, that's not gonna happen to us. Guys, don't fall for that. Don't fall for that. Some of the musicians here remember a day when uh, a lot of the Christian musicians here in town decided to go play in the bars and the nightclubs. And they, it, was, it was, I think in some, in some ways, maybe even honestly motivated. They thought, well, we need to take Jesus into the clubs and stuff. And I don't, I don't remember, I remember several of them ended up not walking with the Lord as a result of that because that influence was so, so strong. Christians are not supposed to be isolationists. What do I mean by that? Well, we don't just pull away as, as a hermit. You know, go live somewhere where there's nobody around us, therefore there's little temptation, and, you know, we can be holy by lack of opportunity. We're not supposed to be that. We're supposed to be a light in the middle of all that darkness. We're supposed to be a light in the middle of our families. We're supposed to be a light in the middle of the neighborhood. John 17, 15 says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So our prayers should be, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm not asking for an easier life, but give me a stronger back. In other words, Lord, I'll take this world as you dish it out. I'll do my best not to correct you in your decisions, no matter what they are. But Lord, it will break me without you. So give me a strong back. Give me the ability to face those things and do the things that I need to do. Lord, give me a stronger back. Now, God's love is possessive. Well, pastor, what do you mean by that? 
When the whole heart is given, the whole heart is expected in return. Jesus gave his whole heart. Jesus gave absolutely everything, so he expects us to love him completely. To be in a relationship, let's say a marriage, where one loves completely and the other one lives, loves sometimes. That's a miserable marriage. When you say those I do's, when you make that commitment, you make that commitment that my heart is linked with your heart. I will love you as much as you love me. In fact, I'll even out try to try to outdo you in that love. You got two people doing that, and man, what a, what a relationship. What an incredible thing that marriage can be. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2, it says, For I am jealous of you with a godly jealousy. You see, I don't understand two people who really love each other that don't have a little bit of jealousy. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm not talking about the destructive kind. I'm not talking about the helicopter husband or the helicopter wife who has to watch every single thing that the other person do, uh, does. Now, that's probably because of a lack of trust. But my point is this. I think if you truly love each other, you're concerned about that other individual. As a man, if I feel like somebody was flirting with my wife, that would raise up something inside of me that I didn't like. But by the same token, it means I love her. Ladies, if you see a gal flirting with your husband, it's normal to have a certain feeling. Now, you don't let that get out of hand. You sit and talk about it, but you don't let it get out of hand. But it is normal to have a certain amount of jealousy in the good way. Not the bad way, but in the good way. He says, for I am jealous of you with a godly jealousy. For I have married you, I have betrothed you, I have promised you to the one husband. And I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. In other words, pure to Jesus Christ. God wants to present us pure. That used to be important to people. It's not so important to anyone anymore. But it used to be very, very important to people. He knows if we truly love him. And you know what? In regards to separation, the world will take care of some of that separation. Pastor, what do you mean by that? If you really fall in love with Jesus, the world is going to not like you. You're going to say weird things like, praise God. You're going to say things like, well, all things work together for good. You're going to say things like, no, I I care about you, but I can't hang out with you. You're going to say things that are constantly referencing God, and that's why the world is going to hate you. Because they believe that you are um, living in a fantasy. John 15, 8 says, if the world hates you, you know that it what? Hated me first. So you're in good company. But sometimes we want so much to have our people, have the people around us think we're awesome that we're afraid to say anything about Jesus. 
whether that's our customers or whether that's our uh, non-Christian friends or whether it's someone we want to impress, we're afraid to stand. We're afraid to be committed to Jesus and take off all the, the false robes to just be who God wants us to be, to give ourselves up completely. All right. We can't afford as God's kids to get entangled with the affairs of this life. We just can't. Does that mean you can't be a good businessman? No, that's not what I'm saying. We just have to make sure that heart is solid, planted to Jesus Christ. No betrayal. No spiritual adultery going on in our relationship with Jesus. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Some of my favorite scriptures here. It says, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living, what? Wow. I thought it was just I give my heart to Jesus and go to church once in a while and say a prayer once in a while. I thought I was, that was it. I was signed, sealed, and delivered. A living sacrifice. What does that mean? Well, you give up some of the things you used to like to do because they're not pleasing to God. You give up you because it belongs and he belongs and you belong to Jesus. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, but it also can be interpreted as your normal acts of worship. What's the greatest form of worship? Having the hottest band in town, the great lights? No. The greatest form of worship is your heart to God's. A living sacrifice. God, I am yours. That's the greatest worship we can ever have. God, I'm committed to you. I'm loyal to you. I'm faithful to you. I won't run around with another. I won't have secret meetings with this person. I won't do those. I'm yours. I'm yours. I'm not perfect, but I'm yours. And then in Romans 12, 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Being conformed, is, anybody know here what vacuum forming is? Right? They heat up a sheet of plastic, they put it in a form, and then they suck all the air out, and that plastic forms around that mold. A lot of the stuff we have and use, utilities today, utensils, things like that, have been vacuum formed. It takes on, it has no shape of its own, it takes on the shape of the mold. Saying, don't be like that. Don't, don't be molded to the world. Don't take on that shape. Don't be like them. But be transformed. Transformed. Being metamorphosized, if you will, from the caterpillar to the butterfly. Now you're you. Now you're you, you who God made you to be. Be transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. We got to quit thinking the way we used to think. This is not okay. Not, well, it's not too bad. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. But be through the renewing of the mind. You know, as Christians, I find myself praying for revival, and I think many of you have been praying for revival. We long for a time when the fire of God will burn bright enough for everyone to see Jesus. 
thousands, if not millions. And we're seeing some of that around the country now. In fact, I think we're seeing here at Calvary Central where people, I was sitting in the very back and people were looking for a place to sit. That's good. It's so good to see so many faces, people back in church making a commitment to God. What an incredible, incredible thing. But honestly, we expect that fire to start somewhere else. We expect it to happen with someone else. But how about us? Revival, real revival, has to start in our own hearts. And Paul goes into that very well in chapter 7 as he begins to talk about that. First of all, if there's going to be a real revival, there has to be an honest appraisal of ourselves. How many times, <laughs> how many times doing a message or even a song, you get convicted? What do you do with that? Do you just go... Oh, well, let's get to the next song. Let's change. Let's go, the, let's go to the next one. An honest appraisal of ourselves. And this is a good time for us to do that. Am I devoted, committed to God? Is my heart sealed with His? Is it in sync with His? Or do I have a few lovers on the outside? Somebody else. Something else that takes me away from the Lord that I'm not willing to give up. Okay, first, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. He says, therefore, remember the therefore? <laughs> Based on what we've already heard from Paul. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all unfilthiness and the flesh, of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, godly fear, honest fear, being respectful. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on, behalf, on, on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation. For indeed, when he came to Macedonia, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, you might want to underline that, told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now, we've already studied about how the church in Corinth was going in a direction that was not honoring to the Lord. So what's happening here? 1 Corinthians 3.3 says, For you are still carnal. This is the way they were. For you are still carnal. For where there is envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men that's who they were but it's not who they became today could be that day that that's who you were when you walked in but it's not who you are anymore there are many 
folks here this morning that I know personally that cashed in that old life for a new one. And God has forgiven all of their sins. They were allowing sin unchecked in the church. But at the end of this chapter, in verse 16, he says in 2 Corinthians seven sixteen, therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Wow. That's a turnabout, isn't it? That's a change. And guys, if you fought half of your life to try to stop doing something, to try to be a better, better man or a better woman, to try to deal with the anger, to try to deal with the loneliness or the heartbreak, the rejection. And you've always gone back and had those same feelings. I can stand up here confidently and tell you the only one that can heal that is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can touch us in ways that nothing else can because he's God he put you together he wired you he can finally teach you what forgiveness really means he can finally teach you what real love means he can finally teach us how and what separation and commitment means he's the only one that can teach a man. Let me back up. He's the only one that can teach a boy how to be a man. How to treat his wife. How to treat his kids. How to treat his friends and how to treat the world. He's the only one. What, a, what brought about this drastic change in him? How can someone go from being so carnal and displeasing to the Lord to make someone like the Apostle Paul say, man, I trust you in everything. I believe in you in everything. Well, let's take a look. Paul was a shepherd. He loved them. He cared very much for them. So he gave them godly counsel. He says, guys, nothing of this is going to change unless you change. Unless you give God the authority that he needs to be able to change you. But he knew that when he confronted their sin for even godly purposes, he wanted to have godly restoration, but he also knew it was going to hurt them. I don't know about you guys, but that part of being a parent is no fun. You wish you could just have a kid and love on them and watch them grow up and they're saying, hey, can I, you know, can I wash the car? Can I clean my room? Can I get A's in school? You know, can I? But they don't, do they? They grow up loving you and they don't want to separate from you in those early years to hating you at about 15, 16, 17 years old. Hate may be a strong word, but they don't like you much. Why? Because you're constantly saying no. And you're constantly correcting them. They're not a job that most parents like. But you have to do it. You have to do it. It's just part of it. 
It's part of being a parent, and that's what was going on with Paul. He wants to see them restored. Being honest about our shortcomings is a very humbling experience, and we got two ways to deal with that. One, ignore it and say the other person's stupid. They don't understand. Nobody knows you. It's your life. You can live it any way you want. Or saying, wow, that's true. I do do this, and I do say that. And I do treat people this way. And I'm not faithful to God. By the way, it wasn't much fun on Paul's side either, having to do this. But he did it. He grieved much and he spent many, many hours in prayer for them while he waited for Titus's return with a report of how they had accepted his rebuke and the counsel that he had given to them. And as Titus read the letter to them and delivered the message, it fell on receptive ears and it produced godly results. How about us? Has it produced godly results in our life? Guys, we're not talking about perfection. The only one that's perfect is Jesus, but that's why we need him, because we can't be. Paul mentions three things in verse seven that produced love and repentance in their heart. Look at in verse seven, he mentions an earnest desire. He says you have an an earnest desire. That word earnest desire means they really, 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 really wanted to know the Lord's will, the Lord's will for their lives, even if it hurt. Wow. Yeah, Lord hurt me. There are so many churches that are thriving today without ever ever mentioning sin or repentance. They're thriving because they're telling them, I'm okay, you're okay. It's a wonderful world. Do whatever you want to do. How do you think your kids would have turned out if you'd have done that? You know, son, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. God loves you. And if you're sorry, God knows that. It's okay. It's okay. Do we have that earnest desire for the Lord's will in our life even if it hurts? We should. Because there's a few things we already know. God loves us. God is our Father. He's a parent to us. And not like an earthly parent who sometimes maybe goes too far in one direction or the other, but a perfect parent. So he's not going to put any more heat and pressure on than is necessary for us to learn, to grow. He said he noticed that they're they're mourning. When they heard how they had fallen short, it broke their hearts. Wow. When we hear that through a song or a message, do we take a moment and pause and say, Oh my goodness, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then it says they even had a zeal for Paul. A zeal for Paul. The same guy that wrote the letter that hurt them in some, to some degree but in a godly way. In Proverbs 27, 6 it says faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are Deceitful. Everybody is living on the kisses 
of friends today. Not everybody. Hopefully we're not. But if you look out into the world, everybody, I mean, good grief, these little, the things, if, you, if you're on Facebook or any of the uh, social media, everybody wants likes. Well, I don't like you. <laughs> I don't like what you just posted. It was dumb. But we live, everybody's living on likes. If I get a whole bunch of likes, that means people like me. No, they don't. They don't even know you. They don't even know you. Social media is such a facade. And then everybody puts on their, their, their best face in social media, right? Do you put on your now picture or do you put your pom-pom picture in high school? You know, I can't imagine people who are dating these days and they go out and they meet somebody and they look like they're 50 years older than they were from the picture. It's like we're living on that instead of reality. That's what I love about the Word of God. If it needs to take a poke at you, it'll take a poke at you. If we're wrong in something, it'll tell us that we're wrong. It won't do as many friends do and just say, oh, you look great when they know it stinks the way you're dressed. Oh, I think I'm going to sleep with my boyfriend this weekend. Oh, that's awesome. That's just wonderful. No, it's not. Come on, wake up. I, she, he, we, me, they, whatever pronoun you want to pick today. Come on. I know I sound like somebody I probably shouldn't sound like, but anyway, it's ridiculous. And, And the worst part of it is everybody wants us to think the same way. They want us to take that idiocy and, and make it part of our, of our life. Earnest. Zeal. They loved Paul. It may have taken a little while, <laughs> but they loved Paul for it. God's going to convict us of things. That's the promise we have of the Holy Spirit, to be convicted. And I personally believe that almost every teaching we ever have, there should be a little conviction in there. Yes, we should make a run for the cross. We should make, let people know how much God loves them. We should tell them about God's grace and God's mercy and that we can be forgiven. But it doesn't hurt once in a while to say, but he gave everything. Let's not just give him something that's half-baked. That, that's, a good, that's a good rebuke. The Holy Spirit will do that work if we'll let him. And John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So if you and I allow room for the Holy Spirit, he will convict us. He will tell us what we're supposed to do. Pastor, are you saying the pastor, that the Holy Spirit will tell us everything? Everything we need. He will share with us. Yes, you bet. Now, regarding the Holy Spirit, I think he almost always deals with us one-on-one first. What do you mean by that, Pastor? He'll tell you personally. Get rid of this. It's not good. This shouldn't be in your life. It doesn't honor me. It's not respectful to me. If he tells us enough... And we ignore that. Sometimes he'll send somebody. In this case, he sent Paul and Titus. So if we ignore it enough, he will send someone our way and say, hopefully, hopefully, guys, 
hopefully we will be open to having godly people come into our lives and say, you know, I love you. And this is just, this is concerning. I hope that we still do that in our lives with each other. Yes, there's grace and mercy in the Lord. And I would also say, don't do that to someone you don't know. Don't do that to someone you have not invested in at all. But if you've invested love and you've invested life into them and they know that you love them and they come to you and say, this is wrong, take heed. Please, please listen to that because that's coming from someone who loves you very much and the Holy Spirit's using them to put that in us. Now, what do we do with that message? What brings about revival? Repentance. What's repentance? Well, let's look at the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, verse 2. Running out of time here, guys. Revelation 2, verse 2. It says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. You have found them liars and you have persevered and you have patience and you have labored for my name's sake. But he also says, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, he gives all the pluses. This is what's going on in your life. These are all really great things, but I want you to look at verse four. Nevertheless, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Those of you that have suffered divorce and it wasn't your fault, somebody cheated on you. You realize, you remember, well, that's a stupid question. Remember that heartbreak? That betrayal? Have we left our first love? All these great things that they were doing, but the most important thing is they had left their first love. So he says, remember where you came from. Repent, do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent. So, here's the thing. If that's where we're at, let's repent. We have an opportunity to say, God, I'm sorry. But if it's, if it's just, if it's not a godly sorrow, it doesn't mean anything. If it's just because you got busted, it, it doesn't mean anything. But if it's true, and if it's honest, and we say, you know, God, I am, I am sorry. That's a good thing. Verse 10, it says, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world just produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal and what vindication, all the things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. That's how they changed. That's how that entire church changed. Godly sorrow gets results. 
godly repentance, saying, God, I'm really sorry. You know the saying, sorry but not sorry? That's what a lot of times I think we are. We're sorry, but not not enough to change it. It's like, forgive me now because I got this thing to do and I got that thing to do. But then we're back into the same thing. That godly sorrow is steady. It's earnest. It's an energetic application and effort. In other words, I do something about it. The clearing of themselves. They had cleared themselves. They had been forgiven. God had taken care of that because that's what God does. He forgives sins. When you and I come to him with that honest desire to lay it all clean and have God work in our life, that desire for repentance and restoration, God says it's done. In fact, I'm convinced that even when the thought process going on and the tears flow, that forgiveness is instantaneous. But it does us good to say, God, I'm sorry. And God forgives us. Okay, Ephesians 4, verse 17 uh, 17 through 20, it says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the world walks, Gentiles, the rest of the world, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all sense of uncleanliness and greediness, but you have not done so and you have not learned that in Jesus Christ. And then I'll give you another one here before we close in Second Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. Wow, <laughs> what a good God we have. What a loving God that will take that old life and cash it in for a brand new one and forgive us if we truly, truly want God's will in our life. Guys, I'm going to encourage you to read the rest because we are running out of time. But the reason Paul was proud of them is because God really was proud of them. Aren't you proud of your kids when they finally get it and they do something awesome? when their love for you is restored because they remember how much you love them even though it hurt. By the way, I need to tell you, sometimes that doesn't happen until 20 or 21 or 40. (laughs) But when it finally does and you can finally feel that love and gratitude from your child, even though they were hurt by some of the things you had to do in life, it's an incredible, incredible thing. But they had taken that appraisal of their own life and it had led to repentance.